8.14, and the 2019 World Economic Forum has kicked off in Davos, Switzerland this week, with world leaders and top CEOs in attendance, albeit minus US President Donald Trump and Chinese President Xi Jinping. The headlines have been far and wide from CNN reporting China's message, stop freaking out about our economy, albeit a message not coming from President Xi himself, um, talking about the outrageous situation around climate change and uh, the apparent incapability of these world leaders to do much about it. A Bono, the U2 legend saying capitalism is not immoral, it's amoral. Uh, Prince William even talking about mental health uh, and nearly 1,500 private jets to land at climate change focused Davos summit. That was from the New York Post. The Guardian saying panic is on the agenda at Davos, but it's too little too late. That just gives you a a flavour of the diversity there. Let's bring in Peter Coy, economics editor at Bloomberg Businessweek, who recently wrote an article titled, The US and China are making Davos a mess for everyone else. Thanks for joining us. Good morning. Thanks for having me on. Um, I mean, I've got to just point out, in the last few hours, we've heard this speech from Chinese Vice President Wang Qishan, who Mm -hmm. said growth remains substantial, and, you know, even though there's a lot of uncertainty this year, China's growth is certain it will continue and be sustainable. Uh, Is this a sort of attempt to clean up the mess, or does it make things even worse? Well... He also said some other stuff, which was a thinly veiled attack on U.S. President Donald Trump. He said, we reject the practices of a strong, bullying the weak, and self-claimed supremacy, which seems a pretty obvious dig at uh, Trump's America first foreign policy, as Bloomberg News wrote. Uh, so, yeah, this is the, uh, the punching and counterpunching continues in Davos. So, you know, two years ago, we had... Xi Jinping there um, saying, pursuing protectionism is like locking oneself in a dark room. And then last year, Trump came, took the stage and said, the United States will no longer turn a blind eye to unfair economic practices. So it seems like they're taking, taking turns, punching each other in the jaw. And in the process, as your article pointed out, the rival superpowers push multinational corporations and other countries to choose sides. Is that how things... Yes are playing out? For sure. I mean, the, the most obvious recent example of what's going on is Canada, obviously a close ally of the U.S., and on December 1st, as I'm sure you guys have talked about, the Canadian authorities arrested Meng Wanzhou, the chief financial officer of Huawei, on behalf of the U.S., which wanted to try her on charges that she misled banks about uh, Huawei's dealings with Iran. So China responded with threatening consumer boycotts of Canadian products, detained two Canadians in China. And then just a week or so ago, Chinese court sentenced another Canadian to death for drug smuggling. So here's Canada, uh, wants to be friends with everyone, finding itself very much pushed to choose sides between two warring superpowers. And, uh, I mean, in the meantime, we've, we've got them racing against time to find lasting solutions for their trade dispute before their 90-day ceasefire expires on March 1st. We were reflecting on this in the last half hour with our previous guest, who was, I think, playing down to a certain extent the impact that the trade dispute is having on, on uh, 
the economy, especially on, for example, our own forecast here in Korea. What's your expectation for the standoff? Do you think we will see a deadlock breaking? Uh, yeah, I, I think something's going to happen. It's just really not in anyone's interest for the U.S. to go ahead with 25% tariffs on 200-something billion dollars worth of Chinese products, which is what's scheduled to happen in March 1st unless there's a breakthrough. Um, if for a long while, there seemed to be no movement. But in the last couple of weeks, you're seeing both sides floating trial balloons. Um, we have top Chinese leader coming to the U.S. January 30th. Um, so there is time to come to a deal, and it may not be uh, ratcheting all the way back to the pre-tariff war situation, but I think there's going to be some cooling off. Can you tell us a bit more about these concerns China's growing influence is having on emerging markets? Right. Well, um, you see it with the Belt and Road Initiative, where uh, China... China seems to be of two minds with its Belt and Road Initiative because it seems to have two goals which potentially come in concert with each other. One is just that it's a good commercial opportunity for its companies with their expertise in construction to uh, use their knowledge to win contracts abroad since China itself has been pretty well built out. Um, The other is for China to uh, advance uh, its diplomatic and military um, strength around the world. And the problem is those two can sometimes come into conflict. For example, if China is uh, cuts a deal that is commercially advantageous but angers the local populace, which we've seen happening in a bunch of places, uh, Sri Lanka, for example, um, you see uh, a backlash against China in Africa and South America. And so uh, the countries may be winning contracts and they may be bringing lots of Chinese workers to to execute on those contracts, but they're not winning the hearts and minds of the locals the way they might have hoped they would. What about the U.S. counter-strategy? Um, the U.S. is not ready to come up with a strategy that is equal to China's. There's not going to be any U.S. Belt and Road Initiative. The U.S. would prefer to work through the existing multilateral institutions of the World Bank, the International Monetary Fund, which, of course, um, are strongly influenced by the U.S., which helped found them after World War II. Um, and, it's constant, and it's also like trying to put some pressure on um, countries not to do business with China. Uh, uh, John Bolton, the National Security Advisor, gave a speech in December Washington, where he said that the U.S. is a better choice for African nations in need of loans. Um, so you're seeing, again, uh, pressure from the U.S. to sides. Some experts, though, are suggesting this year's Davos Forum is all about globalization 4.0. How does that fit in with everything we've been discussing so far, and what does it really represent? Well, you know, we've had these... Uh, one wave of globalization after another. And I think it's, to me, it's almost a bit of a rebranding exercise because uh, globalization has taken on sort of an unpleasant odor in a lot of people's minds. Um, it's, being, it's being associated with inequality, with a domination by a handful of powerful multinationals, not in the best interest of ordinary people. 
So, uh, of course, the World Economic Forum in, is very much all about globalization. So it can't just it can't rest without trying to rescue the reputation of it. So by dubbing it 4.0 and making it seem more friendly and welcoming and uh, embracing all, they they hope to persuade people that withdrawing behind barriers, behind tariff barriers, is not the way to go. Of course, something we've not discussed, um, but we have been reflecting on a lot recently, is the Brexit situation, which also looms and may also counter some of the general atmosphere of what the Davos Forum is all about. What, what do you think this forum can achieve at a very difficult time when so many interests are conflicting? It's mostly a talking shop, and people put that down and say all they do is talk, talk, talk. But um, there is uh, some value in airing these issues and getting smart people together to think about them. Uh, but it also, it's also true that the World Economic Forum has more of a, a agenda that you don't hear about as much, where they actually try to fund projects. And I talked to the head of the World Economic Forum for this article. I didn't manage to get into my piece, but actually financing or, or, or putting together financing from other sources for projects, in, especially in the developing world, uh, you know, figuring out where the barriers are to uh, com- getting commerce done, um, putting source funding sources together with the needs in ways that sometimes the free market all by itself won't do. So I, I do think there... Uh, is one little organization meeting in the uh, Swiss Alps going to solve the world's problem? No. But can it be a force for good? I'm a little bit more open to that than a lot of skeptics are. Finally, the founder of the forum, Klaus Schwab, he wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post on December 31st suggesting that, yes, the old order that the U.S. founded appears to be crumbling, but the U.S. could come out stronger than before if Mr. Trump leverages his first mover advantage in negotiations. How do you read those comments? I read them as Schwab trying to uh, talk directly to Trump, essentially, because uh, I'm sure that piece made it across Trump's desk, whether they read it or not, another question, um, and say, uh, Mr. Trump, Mr. President, um, negotiation is ultimately in your best interest and a go-it-alone strategy is going to redound to the harm, ultimately, of the U.S. So, um, you know, talk. Peter Coy of Bloomberg Business Week, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me on. Good luck. Pleasure. Let's check out the latest track and weather.